welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 51. Huge show on tap this week. Great guest. I'm so excited to speak with him again. Uh, but before we can get to that, I want to do my usual pitch for Counterpunch, the song and dance I do every week. I think it is critical that we maintain a space on the left that allows us to have discourse, critical discourse that is so important these days as uh, seemingly events are accelerating, the developments are ever more ominous, and it's all the more important that we on the left have a place that we can go, that we can trust, to get critical analysis from multiple perspectives. Look at the Bernie Sanders issue. Look at the Brexit issue. Look at any number of the major issues that have come up in the last year and you see almost a complete unanimity as far as uh, the voice that you get from the left. And then there's Counterpunch, where we have some dis- debate, where we have some disputes, where we have differing opinions. And I think that that is critical, especially now. So uh, with that in mind, a subscription to the print magazine is a great way to support the show, to support Counterpunch and the Counterpunch Project. I, I'm a subscriber myself, irrespective of the fact that I have this show, and I think think it's something that uh, you know everyone can do. But of course, if you don't want to do that, you can give us a positive review on iTunes. Spread the word about our program. Bring it to more people. Always helps. Always great. Now, I get all of that out of the way so that I can turn to my guest this week. I'm so happy to welcome back. Uh, well, I guess it's welcoming to this show for the first time. Uh, welcome back to interviewing with me, uh, Giannis Varoufakis. He is probably known to everybody here. He is the former uh, finance finance minister of Greece. He is a uh, renowned economist, brilliant uh, writer and speaker. So happy to speak with him. Giannis, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to be on the show, Eric, and thank you so much for this uh, almost uh, embarrassing introduction. <laughs> well, I, I, tr- I try to embarrass my guests as to kind of get them off their guard so that I can get the <laughs> truth out of them, Giannis, the truth. Um, so there's so much to discuss. You have all of these different uh, initiatives and projects you're working on. I want to get to all of that. But uh, before we do, I want to get your take on the situation as we see it right now in Europe. Uh, it's almost dropped off the radar completely, the economic side of what's happening in Europe with all the political upheaval, all of the Brexit hoopla and all of the rest of that. People seem to have forgotten that working people in Europe are still hurt. The economy is still in crisis. And I want to get your analysis of the situation now. And is this what you expected when you wrote your now, I think, famous book, Global Minotaur, about five, six years ago? Well, absolutely, Eric. The politics and the economics are always intertwined. Any attempt to separate politics from economics or economics from politics, results in toxic politics, and particularly bad economics. Uh, Don't forget that Brexit, which is uh, big news and will remain big news on both sides of the Atlantic for years to come, uh, it's also an economic phenomenon. It's not just a political revolt against uh, the elites, against uh, the European Union, against uh, the London elites, against the city of London, the bankers. Uh, the, the, The main reason why the English, not the British, the English working class voted in droves to get out of the European Union is the slow-burning recession. Uh, the, fa- the fact that living standards in almost every town outside of uh, London within England is depressed. Uh, you, you, you walk through city centres in Doncaster, in Leeds, in York, and all you find is... Uh, uh, misery and desperation. And a whole working class feels completely and utterly abandoned by the elites, even by the Labour Party, the Social Democrats. And this is the reason why Brexit won. So, and as, I'll just repeat this just once again. Any attempt to decouple economics from politics is futile and particularly unhelpful. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things that we discussed a few years ago when we were when we were speaking on a different show I used to do, we were talking then about Greece as a microcosm for what was likely to happen throughout Europe, really continent-wide. And I remember at that time, this must have been about 2012 when we were speaking, and the issue was, what does Golden Dawn represent? And what does the ascendance of Golden Dawn tell us about where Europe is headed and here we are in 2016 and it seems from my perspective that with the economic crisis deepening with austerity with the uh, collapse of the working class and standards of living what we've seen in Greece has now been generalized across the continent so in Hungary in Sweden in the Netherlands in Britain in France in all of these places you have either far-right parties or outright fascist neo-nazi parties in the ascendancy and this is I think, as you were saying, something that should not and cannot be decoupled from the economics. Well, Greece was always the canary in the mine that dies first to warn us that inside the mines we have an impending explosion. The canary is not responsible for the explosion. It's it's death or near death simply should act as a warning that there is something deeply the matter with uh, the whole construct. The period between 2010 and today uh, can be seen from a Greek perspective as an, ex- an experiment. Greece was a laboratory in which uh, the globalized, financialized elites experimented with how they would try to deal with a crisis of their own making. And the experiment produced uh, monsters. One of those monsters is the neo-Nazis of the Golden Dawn. But to, to, to make a leap across a, a large bunch of water, um, the Donald Trump uh, experience is also quite intimately connected. The very notion that you have somebody like Trump running as uh, the... <laughs> candidate of a major political party, one of the two major political parties in the United States, back in 2010, 2012, would have been absurd. In exactly the same way that the idea that we would have Nazis in parliament in Greece would have sounded absurd 10, 15 years ago. They are not absurd anymore, those notions. They are part and parcel of a crisis that the elites created and then could not control, just like Dr. Frankenstein could not create the thing that uh, came out of his laboratory. So, just just to put it briefly, Eric, as briefly as I can, um, after the war, after the Second World War, we had primarily three phases. We had the period of Bretton Woods, which was an attempt to design capitalism in a way that would uh, prevent crises like that of the 1930s from returning, that required the um, uh, control and regulation of finance, of of bankers in particular, of money makers, because this is what bankers are. They create money out of thin thin air, and when they overdo it, the whole thing blows up. So this was a period between, let's say, 1944 and the late 1960s, the Bretton Woods era. Uh, It was the golden era of capitalism. Uh, Excess was controlled, inequality was falling, Unemployment and inflation were very low. Uh, but there was a design fault in, in this uh, scheme, and that fault had to do with the fact that the whole thing depended on the United States being in a, in, in a surplus position, having a surplus, a trade surplus, if you want, uh, financial surplus as well, with the rest of the world. By the end of the 60s, for a number of reasons, the Vietnam War being one of them, not the only one, uh, that ceased to be the case, and the United States blew this up with the Nixon shock in 1971, and we entered the period of uh, extreme volatility, which nevertheless allowed the United States to do something quite remarkable, that is to expand its hegemony uh, while expanding its deficits. This has never happened before in human history. But it could only do that by unleashing uh, the genie, uh, letting it get out of the bottle, the financial genie, letting the bankers do whatever they want. This was a period of financialization, which was mistaken for globalization. It was uh, finances was globalizing, nothing else. 
and that created, uh, together with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the integration of China into the capitalist world, created a situation where money was uh, uh, completely unregulated. Private finance was allowed effectively to reproduce itself almost boundlessly, while at the same time about 2 billion workers entered uh, the capitalist process from Russia, from Eastern Europe, and of course China. And that pushed wages down. That created huge instability because of financialization and inequality as wages were falling precipitously at a time when profits were rising, skyrocketing. And that carried on until in 2008, the financialization bubble burst. And Greece was, as I said before, the laboratory in which the elites tried to experiment with um, ways and means of passing the buck on from capital, especially financial capital, to labor. And the methods and uh, cruel, vicious austerity policies that were created in the Greek laboratory when then exported to the rest of Europe. Um, and, uh, well, this experiment has backfired because you can never deal with a financial crisis through austerity. That is one, one thing we learned from the early 1930s, which gave rise to, uh, to the Nazis in Germany. Uh, what happens is a period of deflation, which then gives rise to the worst kind of xenophobic right-wing populism. And this is what we have in the form of the Golden Dawn thugs here in Greece, Donald Trump in the United States, the right-wing Brexiters in Britain. And now, just I know this has been a very long answer, but let me just complete this by saying that the, um, the, the, the political center has imploded. There used to be a tussle between center-left and center-right, um, the, the political establishment was dividing itself in two camps. One was in favor of slightly more redistribution towards the poor from the rich. The center-right was um, against that. They tussled about this. Usually they would find a consensus. That was politics up until the 2008 crisis. After that, uh, now especially, with the collapse of uh, the the, 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 that kind of establishment politics with the fragmentation of uh, the political center uh, and the establishment politics, what we now have is a bifurcation worldwide, not just here, uh, here in Greece or where you are in the United States, in Europe, in um, the United States, in Latin America. We are seeing the formation of two political blocs. One is... Uh, very similar to the troika of creditors that we had to deal with here in Greece last year and who crushed us in the end. Uh, it's a technocracy of globalized fin fi uh, financial capital together with bureaucrats that want to spread their wings and their power um, at a global level. Uh, they also incorporate Atlanticists, uh, uh, those who want to utilize uh, uh, brute force in order to become or, or remain the policemen and women of the cosmos. Um, th this political party, if you can think of it that, that way, this political block of globalized, financialized Atlanticists have uh, developed a capacity, and that's not a negative thing, uh, to be more tolerant towards minorities, um, less tolerant towards racism, quite relaxed about migration as long as uh, it doesn't threaten their uh, political um, capital. Uh, that's one block. And in opposition to that, we have the xenophobic populist right, which is um, investing on uh, um, racism, on fear and myths, nativist myths about the return to some kind of uh, kinship within the nation state where you erect walls around your country and you keep the riffraff away. Uh, and it, it is this toxic confrontation between a nativist xenophobic populist right and uh, financialized, globalized, uh, Atlanticist uh, um, pack 
uh, who don't even know how to stabilize the, the, the world that they aspire to create. This conflict is um, uh, always going to give rise to uh, rather unpleasant developments for the whole of humanity. There's no doubt about that. Um, I want to ask you one question, I guess in relation to that, that one thing that, that, that we notice about the Trump phenomenon that is really interesting, something that I don't think very many people expected to emerge in this way, and that is that Donald Trump and, and his movement, which I think now we need to be, we really need to think of it as a movement, um, it has in many ways all of the elements of far-right fascist or fa- or pa- fascistoid tendencies with all of the nativism and everything else, but it is also in many ways to the left of Hillary Clinton on, on certain economic issues, in particular the question of free trade, the question of globalized free trade, Trans-Pacific Partnership, NAFTA, all of these, all of these issues, which so in on that point, in in fact, Trump is to the left of Hillary. He has essentially taken over the left position when it comes to that issue. Similarly, Trump has articulated a desire to defend Social Security and, and certain welfare programs, social welfare programs in the U.S., again, to the left of Hillary on that issue, who, when her husband was in office and she was a very influential first lady, they attempted to attack, to undermine, and to privatize our social security system. And again, on the issue of uh, foreign wars, she is far to the right of Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump does it from a sort of a xenophobic isolationist perspective, but still, it is still there. And so I want to ask you this question, this phenomenon of the far right inhabiting a space traditionally uh, inhabited by the left because of the failure of the left through neoliberalism and, to be said, quite frankly, imperialism. Well, you're spectacularly accurate in your depiction. But, Eric, let me remind our listeners that this has always been the case. There's nothing new about that. The devil often has the best of tunes. In the 1920s, the economic critique of capitalism put forward by Benito Mussolini, the fascist uh, leader of Italy, and indeed, of people like Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister, or and the Nazi who became eventually Hitler's propaganda minister. If you read their economic uh, critique of uh, that, that period's capitalism, you'll find that a lot of what they said made sense. And indeed, was very similar to what the left was saying at the same time. Now, of course... You had to confine yourself to a few paragraphs because if you moved beyond them, you would <laughs> yeah. find the, the, that the solution that they were proposing was, you know, what, killing the Jews yeah. or invading other countries or uh, the things that uh, the loony Nazi right always um, converges towards. But nevertheless, the opposition to the empire of banking, the opposition to the idea of uh, untrammeled free markets at the international level, the support for social security. Those were all policies of the fascist Nazi right wing back in the 1930s. So in that sense, Donald Trump is returning to um, a long-standing tradition of the ultra-right. But I think that you're, I would go a bit further than you do it's not just those policies. I think that Donald Trump, in particular Donald Trump, is more dangerous than many of us on the left think. Because in the end, um, he doesn't even have any commitment to the conservatism that he seems to have embraced just in order to win the nomination. For instance, his opposition to Planned Parenthood in, uh, in the United States is only very recent, and it's very skin deep, I think. Uh, it's not skin deep, it's very uh, thin. He's um, em- uh, embracing even of uh, uh, the gay community as a New Yorker um, is something that we should expect at some point. So he can be um, even more progressive looking and sounding than traditional ultra-right wingers were in the 1920s and 30s. 
Yeah, that's definitely true. But I think one of the lessons we learned from the 1920s and 30s, and I unfortunately feel at least right now at the end of July 2016, it seems that we're replaying, and that is the failure of the left. The failure of the left to provide a real, cohesive, and coherent, viable option. So, in the United States, obviously, Donald Trump would be, uh, you know, a a minor sideshow if there were somebody other than Hillary Clinton, a real progressive, a real uh, left populist who was able to articulate some of those same ideas minus all of the disgusting fascist side of that. And we don't have that. Instead, we have a moribund political left in the U.S., uh, similar to what you have in in Europe, at least I I suppose that's debatable. But in any event, um, what we're looking at is a failure of the left to really tackle these issues head on, allowing for the rise of somebody like a Donald Trump. I think similarly, the Social Democrats, and especially in Germany, of that time period, in many ways... uh, you know, backward, you know, hindsight's always 2020, but in many ways, their failure to take on fascism was a failure of policy, a failure of movement building. Let's be slightly more optimistic. In the United States, we have Bernie Sanders. What Bernie accomplished in the last few months has been a political revolution. Never before, at least since the Great War, have socialists managed to have such a very strong presence in American politics. Similarly, on this side of the pond, uh, here in Greece, throughout Europe, uh, those of us who are participating in genuinely progressive internationalist uh, movements like DiEM25, the Democracy in Europe movement that we have created in beginning in, in Germany and then we took it to Finland, Spain and so on and so forth. Um, it, it is quite astonishing the extent of support that we're getting and the way in which uh, we're managing to inspire many, many people. Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom, in Britain, is fighting for his leadership at the moment, but he's doing it with panache. And what these three examples of movements uh, on both continents, on in the United States and Europe, uh, Bernie Sanders in the United States, Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, DiEM25 in Europe, what they are pointing to is the real possibility of a genuine internationalism, not globalism, a genuine internationalism uh, of progressives that will challenge both the um, globalized, financialized uh, uh, political bloc, and in that political bloc, I include people like Hillary Clinton, I include the Social Democrats in Germany, who have been completely and utterly co-opted by this bloc, and therefore have turned against their historic roots, uh, and the xenophobic populist right, which is Donald Trump in the United States, Marie Le Pen in France, um, Nigel Farage uh, in Britain, and so on and so forth. It's a unique moment in history. We have an opportunity to stop uh, uh, whining and moaning about uh, the state of the left. Hillary Clinton never was and never will be part of the left. The Social Democrats in Germany are part of the problem, not part of the solution. We have an opportunity now to seize upon the... Uh, the way in which this global economic and, and political crisis is developing in order to do that which we failed to do in the 1930s. In other words, to create a, a, a solid internationalist uh, progressive bloc that opposes uh, the vicious cycle between the globalization uh, elites and the xenophobic populist uh, reaction to it. Yeah, it's interesting uh, the way you put that. Let's pick that up, uh, pick up that point on the other side of the break. Um, chatting with Yanis Varoufakis. Uh, lots, to, lots more to discuss. Stick with us. We will be right back. No, no.
Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Giannis Varoufakis. Uh, Very interesting point here. Now, I'm not going to quibble about you know, Sanders and and, and uh, what he did or didn't do as far as being a socialist or not being a socialist. But as we're as we're speaking here, we're in the middle of the Democratic National Convention. We had a little bit of controversy just the other day as Bernie Sanders basically urged his supporters into the Hillary Clinton camp, uh, more or less begging and pleading that they not make uh, too much of a too much of a fuss on the floor of the convention. And one of the things that we have seen is a major backlash from a lot of people who who uh, supported Bernie, who were part of this movement, a major backlash against that, a feeling of betrayal, a feeling that they've been abandoned, that they've been delivered into the camp of the enemy, that is the neoliberal Hillary Clinton with all the wars and all of the policies and privatization and free trade and all of the rest of that. And so while a small contingent will undoubtedly end up supporting people like Jill Stein in the Green Party or maybe staying home, the majority of the Bernie supporters are going to end up voting for Hillary Clinton because of the, you know, the fear of Donald Trump. And so the question is, you know, ultimately, and I don't want to necessarily always, you know, take the cynical and jaded perspective here because I don't really like that. But the question is, what lasting achievement can we really point to of what Bernie Sanders did other than to bring a lot more people into the Democratic Party, which I would argue is moribund? You're quite right. The Democratic Party is moribund and uh, it would be a complete waste of the political revolution that Bernie Sanders created or helped foment to simply use it as a way of recruiting more people into the moribund Democratic Party. But this is not what Bernie Sanders is doing. Uh, Let me say that um, Noam Chomsky put it quite magnificently in his usual way, when the other day he said that um, the duty of uh, a progressive in the United States today, on the day of... uh, uh, the general election in the United States in November is if he or she lives in a state that is um, going to prove significant, a swing state, you have to go into the um, um, into this election holding your nose and voting for Hillary. <laughs> Hold your nose to vote for Hillary. Know exactly what you're doing, but to keep Trump out. That is not um, international bloc that I was referring to before, it is uh, progressive politics. Progressives must make choices, while at the same time understanding that the whole point is not to be with Clinton, is to be against Clinton, while at the same time preventing something far worse from occupying the White House. Bernie Sanders' political revolution will be wasted if those hundreds of thousands of women and men who were mobilized in the last year do not create uh, a lasting movement, a movement that may retain some relationship with the Democratic Party for tactical purposes, but develop its own 
mechanisms of producing politics. This is what Bernie Sanders should be aiming at. If, however, he's serious about that, he could not, and I'm sure he's serious about that, he could not afford to uh, make the mistake that, that Nader made some time ago by pretending that the, it didn't really matter whether George W. was in the White House or not. It is important, uh, especially from my perspective, speaking here from a European perspective, um, when, for instance, I was campaigning in Britain for the referendum, I was campaigning to keep Britain in the European Union, in a European Union that played a major role in asphyxiating our government, in vilifying me personally. Was I selling out of the European Union? No. What I was saying was that uh, presented with uh, the political d dynamic of a Brexit that will always favor the xenophobic populists against uh, pro progressive forces, I choose to say to my audience, to people who care about what uh, I may recommend to them, I want you to stay in and against the European Union. I want you to remain in the European Union so as to join forces with us against it. This dialectical uh, position is essential for progressives. So I believe that this is what Bernie Sanders is also doing. We'll stay in the democratic fold because this is what we need given the electoral system in the United States in order to be against the Democratic National Committee <laughs> and the way in which they rigged the election of Hillary Clinton. This is sophisticated progressive politics, Eric. It's not a sellout. Yeah, I, under, I understand that, although I will say, and I, I don't want to belabor the point too much because I want to touch on a couple issues before I let you go, but, um, you know, I, speaking for people who are the bulk of the Sanders campaign, the, the bulk of the Sanders movement that is millennials, people of my age group, you know, people born, let's say, between 1980 and 1995 or something like that, uh, you know, in their from their 30s to their 20s right now, um, I have to tell you that, at least in the United States, we are faced with this exact same uh, uh, situation, not the exact same political terrain, but the exact same decision every four years where we are told by people like Chomsky and other scions of the left that we have to hold our noses and vote for the Democrat because the Republican is worse. The lesser evil politics that we have seen, at least through my lifetime, every election that I can recall and at least can recall going back to, you know, when I was when I was a voting age and, you know, like 2000 with the Bush Gore Nader election, right? And every time that we have been presented with this, it has never done anything to bolster progressivism. It has never done anything to stop imperialism. It has never done anything to change even remotely the political landscape. And so the question I would pose to Chomsky or to anybody uh, arguing that position is, is the tactical decision to be judged on its own merits or are such decisions to be judged on what they produce? And I would argue that the latter is how we should evaluate these issues and history, recent history has shown us they have produced nothing. Democrat wars, Republican wars, Democrat imperialism, Republican imperialism, Democrat neoliberal capital, Republican neoliberal capital. They're just variations of the same problem, the same dichotomy, the same ruling class. And so the question I have is, how can we really substantively undermine and attack that ruling class by continuing to participate in their controlled game? Well, Eric, I'm not a millennial. I'm much older than that, unfortunately. <laughs> but well, I can tell I'm, you that. That's I'm, what I'm saying. The perspectives, I think, are a yep, little bit different. Uh, not really. Not really. Because I'm sick and tired to, of having to make tactical choices. I'm sick and tired of having to choose the lesser of two or three evils. I wish that, I, you know, that we were in a world where progressives had a strong political basis a strong political party in every country, in every jurisdiction, in every region, in every city. And we could vote for that and actually um, enjoy participating in, um, in, 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 in political contests where we can actually vote for that which we truly believe in and not to vote against uh, the, the, the worst of all possible alternatives. But this is up to us. This is my generation's failure to create um, the third way. And my message to millennials is, you provide it. What Bernie Sanders did was to create, in the space of a few months, 
um, a foundation on which you can build, on which you can create a progressive party. Now, you're not going to do this more effectively if Donald Trump uh, beats Hillary Clinton in November. Um, so start producing the political infrastructure, which is necessary so that uh, the next generation and your generation do not have to make the lesser of two kind of, uh, of decision. And let, lastly, let me say, look, I spent in the 1990s a very significant part of my energy uh, campaigning against Bill Clinton's imperialism, especially in Yugoslavia, in the Sudan, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. yep. Having said that, Eric, uh, as an internationalist, I can't put my hand on my chest, on my heart, and uh, say that it did make a difference whether George W. Bush was elected or not, because it did. There are one million people in Iraq, at least, who would have lived had that decision not, not been made by the American people, I'm afraid. Well, you know, I, and again, it's not a point that I want to touch on too much, but I, I don't agree with the idea that Ralph Nader cost George W. Bush the election. I think the Democrats created George W. Bush's victory because the Democrats put up a candidate in Al Gore who couldn't even win his own home state of Tennessee, who was reviled by much of the country. And so Al Gore, in many ways, cost Al Gore the election, not really Ralph Nader. And I find it a little bit interesting. And I I, I will confess my bias in that I, I, I personally respect Ralph Nader tremendously and think he's one of the giants of uh, recent progressive politics in the U.S. And um, I think that it is, again, the, the failure to appreciate the fact that the Democratic Party is part and parcel of the same system that the Republican Party is. I think that is a failing that a lot of people on the left who constantly say that Nader cost Gore the election, that they, that they don't recognize that fundamental point. And I'm not saying that there's no difference between Gore and Bush. I'm saying that the notion that progressives created Bush by not supporting Gore is, in my opinion, has been debunked. Of course, of course, you're completely right. And that would apply to this year's election. Uh, there's no doubt that Hillary Clinton is an appalling candidate. She's an extremely dangerous woman and rather incompetent. Um, everything she touches turns uh, into dust. Um, she has no capacity to inspire. And if she loses to Donald Trump, this will be the uh, error and the repercussion of the mistake of uh, the, the Democratic National Committee. No doubt about that. It's not uh, progressives that should be blamed about that. And it's not progressives that simply can't hold their nose and vote for her that should be blamed about that. But uh, as you said before, you had a consequentialist approach a minute before. You said that in the end, what matters is the outcome. What effect on humanity my choice make, makes. Uh, you and I can sit here um, and criticize the hell out of the democratic establishment, and we should, and we do. But then, you know, in November, people will have to decide what they actually put in the ballot box uh, in swing states. And I think that but I, sub I also have a great deal of admiration for Ralph Nader. Uh, but I must tell you that I have even more of an admiration for Bernie Sanders' principled position now of saying... Um, Hillary Clinton is part of the problem. Hillary Clinton um, ran a, an outrageously, scandalously sinister campaign against Bernie Sanders. Uh, Hillary Clinton is in the pocket of the establishment. Hillary Clinton will probably start another war. But from where we're standing, we want to do two things. Firstly, we want to usurp the Democratic National Committee. We want to create a political movement beginning from the Bernie Sanders political revolution uh, and ending up as a third force in politics that in the end pushes aside both the Clintons of the world and the Trumps of the world. But in the next month or two or three, uh, we choose to use whatever power we have at the ballot box to keep Trump out. That is perfectly legitimate and I think highly commendable. 
I want to ask you about Brexit here uh, really quickly as well, because, you know, I took some flack from people actually on both sides of the debate, because on the one hand, I recognize that not everybody who was supporting Brexit was, you know, a right wing, you know, far right racist or a fascist or something like this. I know there there were plenty of uh, left working class people who were supporting Brexit as a response against neoliberalism, as a response against deindustrialization, against austerity, against all of these policies that, at least in Britain, you could trace back easily to Margaret Thatcher and um, the continuation of those policies under uh, Labour with Blair and the rest of them. And so I appreciated, of course, that there were all of these left sentiments and good left arguments for exiting out of the European Union. The problem I had with that campaign was that ultimately it was spearheaded by the far right. It was the pet project of the far right for more than, for, for at least two decades now. And so to support Brexit, openly supporting Brexit, was in effect the empowerment of the far right, the justification or the, vindific- the, the vindication of their ideological position for 20 years. And it emboldens them and it puts them into power. And so that, I think, is a point that was poorly understood by those segments of the left that were supporting Brexit and you look at the situation now and what the current government looks like and I understand Jeremy Corbyn and the rest of it but I do understand this 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 question of strategic thinking because of the outcomes because the outcome of Brexit is not going to ultimately be good for the working class. Well Eric this is precisely my view too and this is why I campaigned uh, throughout Britain. I think I gave 16 talks in England, in Wales, in Scotland, and in Ireland against Brexit. Uh, But I would, of course, always um, begin my address to any audience that I happen to encounter by distancing myself from any attempt to vilify or characterize as racists those who were supporting Brexit. I understood perfectly well the anger that many people feel especially in the north of England, towards uh, a wholesale establishment that is pushing them, was pushing them, towards staying in the European Union and doing as they were told. If you think about it, who was um, behind the Remain, the official Remain campaign, it was an appalling alliance of uh, establishment uh, figures and bigots put together. They were the Atlantis, they were the Hillary Clintons, they were the bankers from Wall Street and the city of London, there was the Bank of England, there was uh, most of the industrialist uh, establishment, uh, there were the Bilderberg Society people, the German government, the French government, all those governments that uh, squeezed the living daylights out of our left-wing government last year. Uh, and they were all telling the British people, vote to stay in the European Union or Armageddon is coming. So the first thing I would say to my audience was, uh, this is not about uh, us against you, um, pro-Europeanists against anti-Europeanists, good people against racists. Um, this is boils down to a very simple question. Which vote, Brexit or Remain, is going to have the better consequences for working people and for internationalism and anti-racism. And then I would proceed to explain why I felt that Brexit, even if it uh, gave us some satisfaction, maybe a great deal of satisfaction, by watching the, the powerful uh, in Europe and beyond with egg on their faces, I have to say that the day after the <laughs> referendum result came out, um, I took a few moments to relish the sight of the egg on the faces of all those people. But nevertheless, this was not enough to convince me that Brexit was the right uh, vote. Because in the end, this kind of disinte- disintegration of the European Union, based on xenophobia, based on a narrative of keeping the foreign the foreigner out, of building walls, of breaking bonds of solidarity between the British working class and the Polish working class, between uh, um, different uh, members of disenfranchised communities across the continent that was uniting 
for decades. This kind of narrative would, in the end, not strengthen internationalism, would not strengthen the working class in Britain. It would do nothing to end the austerity that gave rise to this anger in the north of England. And finally, the only true um, beneficiaries of Brexit would be the parts of the British establishment that demanded their right to rule over the British working class without having to submit themselves to any checks and balances for Brussels. That was not a good enough reason to vote for Brexit. Yeah, I, 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 I'm inclined to agree with you on, on a number of points there. In particular, um, I think it's a grave abdication of the responsibility of the left to uh, downplay the threat that this sort of movement has on the most marginalized communities, the most economically oppressed communities, the most socially oppressed communities. Obviously, we're thinking of uh, immigrant communities in Europe, just as in the United States, those that come from particular particularly those parts of the world that have been the victims of neocolonialism and imperialism at the hands of the U.S. and Europe. So you see a flood of, of, of migrants and refugees from countries that are torn apart by wars that are directly or indirectly backed by Europe and the United States. Similarly, here we see the flood of refugees from uh, Latin America, places like Honduras and Nicaragua and El Salvador, all of these places where people like Hillary Clinton backed right-wing coups, backed the paramilitary military death squads and all of the rest of that. And so I think for the left to then turn around and support a movement that is directly targeting those communities, I think is... Uh, well, it's quite shameful. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that everybody on the left who was supporting that was doing it out of hatred for these communities, not at all. But I am suggesting that the that the end product of it is precisely that, that you empower those elements that seek to further oppress, further marginalize, and further demonize and scapegoat those same communities. I've got the very little to add to said. I agree with every word you uttered. This is completely, absolutely, perfectly spot on. Uh, this is my di- my difference with uh, good comrades like Tariq Ali in Britain um, and others throughout the continent who were supporting exit from the European Union. My argument was that comrades, this kind of uh, disintegration of the European Union and a recreating of borders and uh, ring-fencing of countries against foreigners is simply going to empower the enemy. It's going to empower the foes of internationalism, the foes of the working class. Yeah, I, I, I can't I, I can't disagree with that. Now, I want to ask you another question. It's somewhat related, but... You know, I had Michael Hudson on this show a number of months ago. I recently spoke to Richard Wolf about this as well, and I want to get your take on it because, well, quite frankly, you three are probably the three most uh, significant economic minds for, for me personally and in helping shape my views. And I want to ask you this. Do you see, as many economists do, uh, an economic crisis in the making, a, a one that would dwarf 2008? I'm not asking you to predict necessarily. I just want want to get your take on the current conditions. A number of economists are writing about things that are quite terrifying, things like a bubble in the bond markets, which uh, for people who don't follow this stuff, uh, a bubble in the bond markets would be exponentially more dangerous and destabilizing than anything that could happen in the stock markets because of the nature of global liquidity, because of the importance of these bonds to the movement of capital. So I want to ask you the, qu- the, the following question. Is Are we on the verge of a bond crisis? And secondarily, and this is really where I want to get your take, given all of the political developments that we're seeing and the ascendance of a far-right and quasi-fascist, if not overtly fascist movement, against the backdrop of a major economic crisis, those are precisely the conditions that lead to full-blown fascist mass movements, mass movements, not individualized little parties in each country, but a real mass movement for fascism. So what is your take on the analysis of a potential bond crisis and its implications and the political content, uh, the, the political developments against that backdrop? The basic takeaway from this discussion 
is that we are not facing a new crisis. The crisis that um, hit us in 2008 has never gone away. It is simply transforming itself, taking different uh, guises in different parts of the world, uh, even within our own countries. One day it's a crisis of banks, the next day it's a crisis of real investment, the third day it's a crisis of um, deteriorating jobs quality and so on and so forth. But the crisis of capitalism that hit us in 2008, just like the crisis of capitalism that hit in 1929, did not go away until the beginning of the Second World War, which created the boost in aggregate demand to make it go away. Um, exactly the same is happening today. What is happening in the bond market is simply a reflection. It's, it's symptomatic to the massive loss of economic activity that hit us in 2008 and which we never really recovered. The bond markets, the fact that you've got um, negative yields, negative interest rates today, uh, is just a typical reflection of the fact that we have uh, what I call the Twin Peaks phenomenon. This is not a reference to David Lynch. Uh, the, the, the Twin Peaks phenomenon, as I see it, is on the one hand we have a huge buildup of unsustainable debt and banking losses. I don't need to explain this to our audience. Every, everywhere you turn, you can see this mountain of unsustainable debts and banking losses. But there is a second peak hiding in the shadow of the first peak. And it is the peak mountain of uh, idle savings. So we have this wonderful uh, contradiction. At the same time, we have a huge amount of losses and debt that is keeping countries like Greece, Spain, Portugal down, unable to breathe, to um, regain their economic poise. And at the same time, we have the largest pile of idle cash in the history of capitalism. The fact that the, the one peak is not helping ameliorate the other, the fact that the idle class, cash is not being invested into economic activity that will produce the incomes from which the debt and the losses will be repaid, is, uh, if you want, the key to understanding the deep crisis of capitalism after 2008. And the symptom of that is uh, the fact that bond prices are very high and yields are very low, actually negative. It's uh, like in every other market. If you've got huge supply compared to demand, in this case, supply of cash um, supplied by those who own it to those who should be borrowing it to invest it. But demand is very low. So when you have this excess supply, price keeps falling. The difference with the market for potatoes and the market for money is that in the market for potatoes, if you have an oversupply of potatoes and the price keeps falling, at some point, consumers will step in, buy the potatoes and eat them. But in the market for money, that's not happening. Because as the price of money, which is the rate of interest, keeps falling and then goes into negative territory, this undermines the viability of financial institutions. And people look at interest rates going below zero, and they panic, and they stop investing. So it's like your appetite for potatoes being lost when its price goes below zero and people actually give it to you. It's like the equivalent of not wanting to eat potatoes if people give it to you for free. <laughs> you only have to state this in order to understand the depth of the crisis of capitalism at the international level that, we, that we're facing. At the moment, my estimation, we have around six to seven trillion um, idle cash. Money that uh, is sitting idly in in financial institutions, doing things like speculating and pushing up uh, share prices and all that, but not being invested in productive activities. This great deflation, this is what I call it, the great deflation, is what creates the political ramifications that take the form of uh, Donald Trump in the United States, uh, neo-fascism in, in Greece and elsewhere. Finally, the only thing that is saving us from a mass fascist movement that takes over in this period of great deflation is that the fascists are not particularly smart or that they're too criminal. Here in Greece, for instance, Golden Dawn is stuck at around 7-8% of the popular vote. 
And the only reason for that is because they are thugs, because they keep, they keep killing people, you know, on the streets. If they were a bit more nuanced, they would have shot up 30%. So I'm not sure whether I should say gla- gladly that they are <laughs> too criminal. It's a double-edged sword. More generally speaking, Eric, and this is how I'll end this soliloquy. Uh, if you look at the 1920s and 1930s, fascism became dominant, hegemonic, and took over governments with mass support. Only when industrial capital, at some point, in order to stem the rise of a left wing that was uh, antithetical to, to capital's interests, threw their lot in with the fascists. It was the support of industrialists in Germany and in Italy that gave rise to uh, the Nazi and the fascist governments. So far, the establishment, so far, financialized capital and industrial, military industrial complexes and so on have not thrown their lot in with the, the nascent fascist movements. It's what is keeping them from power. But we should not take it for granted that uh, this won't happen and we should prepare. Well, I totally agree with that 100%. Okay, uh, we're just about out of time, but I want to just ask one final question, give you a chance to uh, tell people about your new project. Um, I think that this is very important, and I I, want to ask you, so first of all, what is DM25? Uh, What is this new movement, and what is it intending to do? And then uh, secondarily, is democratization, as you call it, democratization in Europe, is this actually possible? What I mean to say is, is the European Union, as it was constructed and as it exists in the real world, something that can actually be reformed? Or is it something that needs to be rebuilt from scratch? Uh, in other words, does it is the democracy deficit in the European Union, something that is built into it. So tell me about the movement and why you think we can actually democratize Europe. Well, DiEM25, the Democracy in Europe movement, is a response to what happened last year in the European Union when our government here in Greece was crashed, not just because of anything that, uh, um, any serious threat that Greece was uh, presenting to the establishment throughout Europe, but as a message to the Spaniards, to the French, to the Italians, uh, to, to the Brits even, that uh, they, they better not elect a government that says no to the establishment. So once democracy was crashed by the powers that be in Europe, uh, many of us throughout the continent, from Finland all the way to Portugal and from Britain all the way to Greece, including Germany, because we've started the movement in Berlin on the 9th of February 2016, this year, uh, we felt that uh, enough is enough. Uh, Europe is disintegrating because of a combination of authoritarianism and um, austerity. And this disintegration um, can only be stopped by a process of democratization. And if it is not stopped by a process of democratization, it would yield a new a postmodern version of the 1930s. So our slogan was very simple. Europe is disintegrating, and this disintegration can only stop through a process, a movement for democratizing it. Uh, we reject both uh, the authoritarianism of the powers that be, of the establishment, and we also um, reject the sirens uh, who are trying to lure us back into the bosom of uh, the nation state, especially in a continent that has begun to integrate some time ago. We have an internationalist uh, democratic agenda, the purpose of which is to do that which we failed to do in the 1930s, to band together as Democrats throughout the continent to stop the descent into that abyss, Uh, the abyss which we can see happening as we speak. Your question on whether the European Union is reformable or whether we should uh, um, start from scratch is a hugely pertinent one. To those of us listening in, in the United States, let me say that even though there are significant differences between the United States and the European Union, um, this is not an impertinent question to ask in the United States context either. The panoply of the American state 
is uh, geared against democratization. The, the American Constitution, the Federalist Papers, are replete with a disdain for the idea of a genuine democracy. It's all about representative democracy, the purpose of which is to keep the demos out of democracy. Um, you could say this about any state that has emerged from the process of uh, capitalist development, that it was created in order to prevent democracy and that it cannot be reformed. Uh, this is true, and it, it's doubly true for the European Union, which was created not just as a state, but as a cartel of heavy industry, which eventually was financialized. Uh, the answer, therefore, <laughs> just to, to conclude, is that we need to confront the European Union institutions, institutions that were designed to be anti-democratic, not institutions where there's a democratic deficit where you simply inject a little bit more to democracy. Institutions that were designed to be deeply anti-democratic, contemptuous of democracy, to confront them in order to do that which uh, progressives have always done. To be in and against. To stay within the, the, the framework of uh, the institutions that were established by an anti-democratic system uh, in order to work against them from within. That is the task of progressives everywhere, and that is the task of DiEM25 in Europe. Very interesting. Okay, uh, we are out of time. I've kept you over the time already, but where can people go to find out more information about DiEM25? Where can they go to follow your work? DiEM25.org. Really very simple. Very good. <laughs> very good. And uh, are you still doing Yanisvarifakis.eu? Uh, yes, of course. Of course. Okay, yeah, that's course. that's Giannis's blog. You can follow a lot of his work there, interviews and his writings and and so forth. Um, I highly recommend it. I I think it should be really required reading for anybody on the left. Uh, I don't think that Giannis and I agree on one hundred percent of the issues, but uh, on a lot of the most important points, there's definitely agreement. And this is precisely the kind of the kind of conversation that really must take place on the left, given the crisis that we're facing. And one crisis we didn't talk about is also one that the left really needs to come to terms with, and that's the climate crisis and the relationship between climate change and all of the economic problems that we're talking about. Giannis, I, don't, I didn't mean to throw that out there, but I didn't want to not give you a chance to comment on that if you wanted to. Well, Eric, how could we agree on everything when I can't agree with myself <laughs> um, most, most of the time? Every time I sit down to write an article, I've, I, I, I have... You know, my head is like a republic within. Uh, but where I think we can agree is on the importance yep. of the progressive uh, politics with which to confront the misanthropic turn of, of uh, um, the post-1970s history that is afflicting humanity with immense costs, uh, one of them being climate change and the denial of climate change and the incapacity of capitalism to uh, accommodate the imperatives of profit maximization with the preservation of life on this planet. Absolutely. And then if you consider the crisis that Europe is facing from a relatively small refugee uh, uh, influx into Europe now, imagine what's going to happen when millions of people start uh, fleeing their homelands because of climate changes. Indeed, let me tell you that there is no such thing as the refugee crisis in Europe. All that there is, is um, um, a realization in Europe that Europe has been disintegrating and um, the sight and sound of, of a few hundreds of thousands of uh, hapless refugees from Syria and Afghanistan and so on and so forth simply brought all the discontent that has been accumulating in this continent onto the surface. But also, harking back to a conversation we were having before about the European Union and whether uh, even radicals like us should try to work in and against it, as opposed to disintegrating it, well, climate change says it all. It is impossible to deal with climate change at the level of nation states. We need the European Union institutions. We need to usurp them, to use them, to put them to good work against climate change. Uh, very well said. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Yanis Varoufakis has been my guest. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Hopefully, uh, at some point in the not-too-distant future, we can have you back. Absolutely. Thank you, Yanis. Thank you again, listeners. As always, speak to you again next week. <laughs> 